Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. It would probably be good for us all to just acknowledge that every one of us has theological issues, right? (laughs) Let's, hello, my name is Joshua. I have theological issues. Maybe maybe that can be the starting point for the community of faith um, that we all have an issue or two theologically. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be skipping around. The passages are in, uh, in your bulletin. We'll start off in Timothy, then move to Luke, and then move to Joel. Um, but before we get to Timothy, I want to uh, frame a bit of our morning together uh, by addressing how we think about faith uh, through a cultural lens. Our culture shapes how we think about things. Our cultural moment shapes how we think about things. And so it's good to name that. Um, I've shared this a time or two before, but uh, our hermeneutics, which is a fancy way of saying how we read the Bible, um, there is a way that we think about reading the Bible that has as its goal to get rid of any need of interpretation. Uh, So there are some folks who think that you can eventually get to this pure reading of scripture. Uh, If you have no idea what I'm talking about, perhaps you've heard this phrase before. Uh, Well, it's just what the Bible says. And so just do what the Bible says, or this is clearly what the Bible says. And so people derive their theological positions on, on thinking that there is no need for interpretation, that it's just what the Bible says. Um, This view, however, is fairly impractical, uh, I I think, uh, because all of us bring interpretive lenses to uh, not only just the Bible, but to life. You can never remove your interpretive lens the way that you see things. It's been shaped and conditioned by a culture, a nation, a family of origin, your economic situation, perhaps your racial where you come from uh, in in your families of origin and your race, all of those things shape uh, how you see the world. And so interpretation, I think, is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. The folks who say, well, it's just what the Bible says, they they think that um, interpretation is a result of sin. That somehow we now need to interpret one another and we need to interpret God uh, because of sin and because we're sinful people. Um, But I think interpretation is a good thing. In fact, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God interacting with Adam and Adam and Eve. There is a conversation that happens. There's a back and forth. There are words that are spoken. And so interpretation, I think, is a good thing. It's a necessary part of any relationship. You cannot have a relationship with another person without interpretation. So, like anything else though, even though it's good, uh, it does have its shortcomings, certainly because of sin, but interpretation itself is in need of redemption. And part of the redeeming of interpretation, I think, is having a critical eye to how our particular culture and moment shapes how we see things. 
So we want to be self-critical. If you're not self-critical, you have blind spots, right? If you are not critiquing yourself and if you don't admit that you have theological issues, for instance, you will have blind spots. All of us have them. Uh, and so part of um, redeeming our sense of interpretation, how we interact with God and with one another, is having a critical eye um, for how the culture and our moment shapes our view of God. And so we can ask then, uh, maybe we ask this question, in what ways has our culture and our moment distorted how uh, God has revealed himself through Jesus? Or how has our culture and our moment distorted and influenced, maybe distorted is not the right word, but influenced is definitely a good word, how has our culture and moment influenced our reading of scripture? And how has our culture and moment influenced us in such a way that we actually miss Jesus in the reading of scripture? Or, uh, to have a little fun this morning, um, how do we miss Jesus when we sing songs in worship? Um, so this is what I asked Brian this week. I was like, Brian, uh, this is about the song, Who You Say I Am, and please sing this again sometime when we sing it. Don't remember everything I'm about to say. Um, but uh, I told Brian this week, I need a, a me-focused, me-and-Jesus kind of song. Can you whip one up? Like, can, can we sing a me-and-Jesus kind of song? And I was like, there's this song, there's this song. And I went through all five hundred plus songs in our musical database. I was like, that's the one who you say I am. That's the one I, I, I want uh, to use. So if we go through all the lyrics in the song, which we're not going to do, don't worry, we're not going to do, we could affirm most of what is in that song. In fact, most of what's in that song uh, is, is based on the scripture. Most of it pulls directly from um, scriptures that refer to our identity in Christ. But uh, remember that we see things and we read things through an interpretive lens that is informed by all our culture and our moment. And so when we sing songs like this, or last week uh, Brian had some triumphal songs, we can sing those songs with a certain kind of disposition that is influenced by our culture and our moment. So when we sing this song, this Who You Say I Am song, uh, through the lens of our culture and our moment, we could say that it becomes about our particular identity triumphing over the opposition. It affirms that God loves us as his children, which is true and right, but because we live in a triumphalist culture, a triumphalist moment, uh, it can mean this, that we're singing this and we're saying we will overcome everyone opposed to our particular viewpoint and position. We could be facing something in life and, and I'm chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. No matter what people are telling me, we can say I am who you are say, say I am and can ignore the fact that we're jerks. Right? Sometimes we need people to give us the true, honest feedback about ourselves. And so we can sing these things in a triumphalist way that the goal is just to simply overcome and have victory and all those kinds of things, and we can miss entirely the point of what's being spoken to us or what we're singing or what we're reading because we've been so influenced by our culture 
and our moment. And so this, the, 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 the thing that I want us to, that I want to name for us this morning is that we live in a triumphalist culture. We live in a triumphalist nation. Um, uh, think about uh, this in, in terms of our national fabric, and this has shaped our sense of spirituality and Christianity. Part of our national fabric is that we are a triumphalist culture. We, white Europeans conquered natives and we conquered Africans and enslaved them. We colonized. We created an entire nation built upon this. We've acted as the world's policemen in our time. And so part of the national fabric is we think that we can do anything and the goal is victory over everything. And if you say that certainly has not crept into our churches, I would politely beg to differ, right? That sense is a part of our churches. We uh, think of it, think of the, the term or the phrase Protestant work ethic, right? You want to keep forging on, keep forging on, keep forging on until you achieve whatever that work uh, is going to achieve or the prosperity gospel is out there and so do this, then you will get this uh, from God. Or uh, this idea and the language is just pervasive that faith leads to victory, which is equated with victorious circumstances in this life if you have enough faith. Um, I've had folks in the past leave our church because we were not victorious enough. Apparently, I'm too depressing when I speak. Um, but that is in the ether. We want to be a victorious people. The scriptures that we're going to look at today, I think, offer a home uh, to those who've had a hard time experiencing faith as victory over victory over victory. I think these scriptures provide a space for us who are doing our best to follow Jesus, who believe that with all their being, Jesus is the hope of the world and the hope for our lives, and yet we find ourselves tired uh, as if we're in the midst of a race that seemingly never ends. Um, and so this imagery of a race comes to us in this New Testament passage that we're going to look at, just two verses from Paul to give us a picture in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It'll be on the screen, I think, behind me. This is what Paul says as he's writing to Timothy, as he's closing out his second book, as he's sitting in prison. He writes, I've fought the good fight I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul's fought the good fight. He's finished the, uh, he's finished the race. Let's read this and think about it from the triumphalist lens, uh, because this is how our culture has shaped this kind of reading. This might be the picture that we get. Yeah! I did it! Right? Victory! We did it! Woohoo! Let the colors explode as we cross the finish line. Um, this might be the perspective that we have. Or this might be the, the, the telos or the end that we want. We just want to cross that finish line and be a victorious people. But this couldn't be further from the place that Paul is writing from. Paul is writing from his prison cell, his second go-around in the prison cell in Rome. 
Uh, earlier on in the chapter, he talks about being abandoned by his friends. So he's alone, his friends have left him, and he's on death row. This is his situation, and this is the context in which he's writing these words. This isn't that, right? There, there is a sobering reality that Paul is writing from. There's no earthly sense of triumph. In fact, there's no sense of victory in an earthly sense. He's lost, he's rotting in prison, and he'll soon die. Um, the, the race that Paul's referring here to isn't a breezy 5K, which I could run. Uh, it's not even a marathon. It might look more like this. So these are various pictures that I pulled from the internet about people who have crossed the finish lines of not 5Ks, but long, long races. I know, Ashley Sonnenberger, thinking about you, I know there are a couple of really committed runners here. Uh, a couple of you guys, what, 10, 11 years ago, completed the Ironman. You're nuts. Uh, I don't know why you would want to do such a thing. But, um, but this maybe is a little more accurate to what Paul is feeling and what Paul is experiencing. He's closing in on the finish line. He has been beaten. He has been abandoned, but he has been faithful. So here's a few fun facts about races, okay? So I googled the 10 worst races, okay? This is one I picked up on. Uh, it's called the self-transcendence. Anybody hear of this one before? Obviously not the most popular race in the world, all right. Well, here's some fun facts about the self-transcendence. Uh, the race calls runners with tremendous courage, physical stamina, concentration, and the capacity to endure fatigue, boredom, and minor injuries. Why boredom? Here is why. Runners cover 3,100 miles in 52 days, here's how, by running 5,649 laps around one block in Queens, New York. <laughs> Passing the same playground, ball fields, and high school, all on punishing concrete. Successful runners have to run over 60 miles a day. You're probably likely to burn about 10,000 calories per day. Racers regularly begin at 6 a.m. and go to 11 or 12 at night until they begin at 6 a.m. again, which is the start time for the next day. This might be a bit dated. Um, maybe it's not a popular race anymore, but in 2009, the winner from Finland averaged 72 miles a day. I don't know whose definition of fun that is. Um, it's not mine, but this is probably more of the imagery that we can identify with Paul. Paul's words are completely incongruent with how we are conditioned, conditioned to think of a victorious faith. We think of, we think of a victorious faith, and I've been in, I've, I've been in these circles, and I've drank this water, right? We've, uh, we, we think of victorious faith as using God to conquer all the odds, so God is our, like, magic potion in order to conquer the odds. But for Paul, his sense of victory is much different. His victory comes in an ability to live faithfully, in poverty, in persecution, in isolation, because Christ had conquered death. 
So he can do all these things because in the end, the end game, the, the final final for all of us is death. And for him, it's not death, is non, it's a non-issue. Because Christ has conquered death and so he can live as he does faithfully with no longer anything to fear because Christ has conquered death. And so he says later on in verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and gave me strength. I think this is a sobering reality for us as followers of Jesus in this cultural context and moment when the vision, I think all of us, if we're honest about it, have encountered over time uh, in one way or another is a victorious and a triumphalist faith. So I think this is a sobering reality, but I also think it's comforting because I don't know about you, but I much more identify with the second picture of runners than I do the first. When I think of my faith and when I think of following Jesus, these are the pictures that I associate um, what this race looks like, uh, not, not, not the first set of pictures. Uh, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 18, we'll go to our second passage, which is a parable of Jesus, and it furthers this racing pictures, these two racing pictures with a story of two prayers. So follow along in this passage from uh, verses 9 through 14. To some, so Jesus is speaking to a crowd here, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers are not even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So let's look backwards here and begin with the idea that Jesus presents of being justified. What exactly does being justified mean? Uh, one of the more common verses probably that we would be able to associate with it comes from Romans 3.24, which says that they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. And so here, justified means to be made right with God, specifically to be made right with God through Jesus. But let's track this a little further. More generally speaking, justified simply means to be made right, or there is a sense of rightness that comes along with it. When we want to justify our actions, for instance, we want to prove that our actions were the right actions. In accounting, justifying is, is also in accounting terms. It kind of means balancing the books or getting to the point where the number, numbers equal themselves out. If you're an accountant, you can't justify the books. You work and you work and you work until things are made right, until they equal themselves out. What's interesting about this parable of Jesus we just read is that justification also has another dimension to it. 
speaking rightly about something. And this speech is descriptive then of an internal life. So what the tax collector and what the Pharisee are speaking reflect an internal understanding. And so there's this dimension of justification that comes from speaking rightly because uh, uh, that speech is reflecting something that is inside of us. When we speak rightly about something, we're accurately describing the situation. The tax collector was justified because he spoke rightly. He spoke rightly about himself, and he spoke rightly about God. He was the sinner, which was an accurate and is an accurate description of him. God was the giver of mercy, and is the giver of mercy, which was an accurate description about God. The tax collector recognizes and names his place of spiritual poverty. And as he names this and pleads for mercy, Jesus says he's justified. So as he names accurately himself and describes God as the one who gives mercy, this is what justifies the tax collector. And this is contrasted with the Pharisee. And these two characters themselves couldn't be more of a contrast. The tax collector is hated by God's people. Hated by God's people because they're taking advantage. The tax collector makes his money off the backs of the working class and the working poor. He can tax whatever he wants. They have to do whatever he says they, they do. And he passes on a little bit either to the temple or to Rome. And then he pockets the rest for himself. And those rates can be exorbitant, and the people feel this. And so the tax collector is hated by God's people, but the Pharisee, on the other hand, is the one who is instructed, is like the pastor to God's people, supposed to be the pastor to God's people, helping point people to God. And so these two people couldn't be more opposite, but just as Jesus does in so many of his parables and so much of his teaching, what he does is invert the things invert our expectations of who is what in this parable. The Pharisee is not described as justified before God. This is what he prayed. Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers and evildoers and adulterers are even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And so we read this and we read pride. But if we only hear that, we'd miss part of what Jesus is saying here because I would undoubtedly say this is true for all of us too. There is a measure of, of how we understand our relationship with God that, that we know what the Pharisee is doing here because we do the same things. We measure our standings with God by what we do or what we don't do. And so he is in God's good graces because of what he is doing and also because of what he's not doing. There's a diagram that I, I or a little picture. So on the left there, this is the way the Pharisee thinks. And this is the way that we think too when we're not maybe at our best, right? We think if we do the right things, the works, then we will be made right in our standing with God. And so our, our standing with God, when I would suggest when we're at our worst, when we try to earn our way to God's love, God's acceptance, God's forgiveness, when we try to earn those things, 
It lies within our court whether we are justified or we're not. And so this is a very simplistic on the left understanding of the Pharisee who operates in a contractual relationship with God. He thinks what he has or what he hasn't done justifies him before God. But this is important. He's not justified. He's not not justified because he has spoken because he has not spoken rightly about himself but he's also not spoken rightly about God. And so he's not justified here, not only because he doesn't understand himself, but he of all people should understand God. And and what he's doing here is describing God wrongly because, this is important, friends, God is not a contractual God. It's not like you give God something, he's going to give it to you back. You do right, be blessed. You do wrong, you will be cursed. That, that there is a truth to that. If you do right, things won't always turn out, but at least you'll have your integrity. If you do wrong, sometimes it turns out that you suffer the consequences. Some, some jokers get away with it, right? And so that contractual relationship doesn't work with God. Although we do want to do right and not do wrong, our relationship with God does not ba- is not and cannot be based on a contractual basis. Because all of us would flunk pretty successfully, right? And so God is not contractual. God instead is covenantal, okay? God is not contractual. God is covenantal. Covenant is a stronger word. It's a word that does not break with violation. God is the same. This this might be mind-blowing, and you might think, really? But God is the same towards us whether we bless or we curse, whether we abide by God's ways or not. God's disposition, God's desire towards us is the same. God cannot not love us. God cannot not bind himself to us because God is a covenantal God. God is not a contractual God that is based upon the whims of whether you can live up to God's standards or not. Now, does that excuse whatever you want to do? Absolutely not. But it does absolutely transform the way that we relate to God and understand who God is. God binds himself to us. This is the very nature of Jesus and what we see happening on the cross. And so, don't don't mishear me. This doesn't mean there are not consequences to our actions and we can do whatever we want to. Uh, I've described this before, um, but we can understand God's judgment or God's wrath not to be thunderbolts from the sky, but God giving us over to the choices that we make. And so, God does allow us to make the decisions that we make and suffer the consequences, but... Because God is a covenantal God, God will not then abandon us to those things, but God will continue to try to work to intervene and to bring healing and reconciliation and restoration. And so if if you're going down the path that is just wrong and evil and destructive, and you harden your heart to all the ways that God is trying to intervene in your life, God will eventually just say, okay, you're... You've literally asked for it. But that's not the end. That's never the end with God because God binds himself to us. 
And so God will continually then work to redeem whatever end that we bring ourselves to if we will open ourselves and allow God to do this. And so all of us in this room can identify as the Pharisee, maybe not because of his I'm better than you-ness, maybe some of us have that too, probably all of us do in some ways or another, but we're like the Pharisee because we've been conditioned to think in our human interactions, and we've placed this then upon our interactions with God, that in our human interactions, they're all contractual. It's what you give to me and what I can give to you. This is why marriage is covenantal, because there's so much that goes on within a marriage, right? It's supposed to be a a, a symbol, um, a sacrament of our relationship with God, because no matter how many times I screw up in my marriage, or annoy my wife, or make her mad, because sometimes I'm just dumb. She sticks with me. She's not here today, so you can't ask her why. But her love is not contractual. Her love is covenantal. Her love is covenantal. God's love is not contractual. God's love is covenantal. God is committed to us. Friends, this is, this is good news, right? If gospel means good news, I think this is good news. God is committed to you even when you're not committed to God. God is committed to you even when you're not committed to God. And so on, on the right-hand side, you, you see this, this, this never-ending kind of circle, right? And so there's God and there's the mercy of God that's just being dumped out upon us, right? And then we have our doings, some of which are good and some of which are bad, but we bring those things again to the mercy of God. Like the, the, the posture and the position and the activity of the tax collector is not the exception of the norm of the Christian life. It is the rule. There is something about God. I'm, God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. That is a posture of honesty about our humanity. And that picture brings a great freedom because we don't then have to try to escape who we are. But we can be honest about who we are. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, within the the church, this this term, this word, sinner and sin and everything, it has been used in a way that has been unhelpful because it's been used as a tool of manipulation, right? It's been used to to make you feel bad about yourself, so you turn yourself to God. Friends, we're all sinners. I don't have to tell you. I don't have to make you feel bad about it. Let's just be honest about it. That's, That's the condition of where we are. We are in need of the breath of God's grace continually. If you think you can take any breath that is not the grace of God, you are mistaken. Like we are dependent upon the breath of grace for everything that we do. And we, uh, that, is what, that is what living into a life of Christ means. It means that we continue to learn that every breath we breathe in is a breath of grace. And that asking for mercy is not for the bad people. It's for everybody who's human. 
and it's received by the God who is merciful and desires to give mercy. Let's look at the Joel passage that Jane read earlier. There's some apocalyptic language in there, which can be a little daunting and confusing, but it's poetry, so read it as poetry. There's a picture that we want to gain from it. It's uh, just the genre that it's written in. But there's so much here that is beautiful in what Joel says, the picture the prophet paints here. The people have experienced a time of physical, and this is Uh, Physical and spiritual desolation. So the physical comes from all of their crops being eaten. There's this bad year that comes in, locusts, which were are are still a part of the world. Apparently, I just found this out last week. Locusts still a part of the world, eating crops, all those kinds of things. They've experienced desolation. They've experienced famine, but it's a spiritual desolation as well. And so there's a plague that's come of locusts. They've been unfaithful to God. In other words. Externally and interiorly, they are empty. And this is what Joel says. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he's faithful. He has given you the autumn rains because he's faithful. These rains of grace can only come as, uh, to us as we as we speak rightly, so to speak, of ourselves and of God. They come as we accept and confess and as we, we join the tax collector outside of the temple from a distance far away and beat our chests and say, God, I am a sinner who is in need of mercy. And there are ways to communicate that that we're sinners and in need of mercy, and there's different ways we can hear it. The first is, you're sinners. Change your ways, friends. I could get, you know, all the charismatic and Pentecostal, all you who are in sin out there, change your ways. God's going to smote, smite, smote, smicken you. Right? You could communicate it that way. God is angry with you. Turn now or burn. And it's effective because... Fear is an effective tool, right? But I'm not sure that this message accurately reflects and communicates God's heart. Because you could also communicate it this way. Friends, we're all sinners. You're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. But your sin and my sin does not keep God from us. It keeps you from God. Let me say that again. Your sin, my sin does not keep God from you. There is a message that's out there that God is too holy to be around sinners. That message is completely contradicted by Jesus. Who is accused of hanging out with sinners? So our sin doesn't keep God from us. It keeps us from God. It is us choosing our own ways and our own paths. And friends, That way gets exhausting. It is exhausting. Because we're not that smart. You're not that smart to run your life. Maybe that would be a great confession for us to say. I am not smart enough to run my own life. Three of you, that's great. We'll have to work on the rest. And to all you Pharisees out there, 
who think you can run your own life. But your sin doesn't keep you from God. It doesn't keep God from you. It keeps you from God. Because (laughs) the beautiful thing, friends, that this is the gospel that God desires to be with you and to heal you. God desires to, to pour down fresh spring and autumn rains on your dry and thirsty soul. It, but it's only, here's the, here's the thing that, that we learn from Jesus here. It's only as we accept our weakness and are bent towards sin. It's only as we accept that that we can receive grace. Otherwise, friends, we're not in need of it. And so it's in a place as we accept the poverty that is ours, the spiritual poverty that is ours. That's, that's actually where the kiss of God happens. That's not where condemnation happens. That's not where God says, you know, you really do suck. It's the place where God says, no, I really do love you. And so being in touch and confessing those things about ourselves and the brokenness of ourselves and the sinfulness of ourselves and the waywardness of ourselves, in confession, that is actually the place where we meet God and where God meets us. I think this speaks rightly both of God and us. We are sinners and we are in need of mercy and friends, God is so full of mercy. This is what Joel writes later on that Luke picks up on then in the book of Acts. He says this, And afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Friends, this is the picture that Luke picks up on the book of Acts when the spirit is poured out which is the most beautiful picture of God with us because it gives us this picture of of this. You are the home for God. You are God's temple. And through the Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity, God desires to actually make God's home in you. In this life that is in need of some massive renovation, God desires to dwell there. God desires to dwell in my little shack with its leaky plumbing and everything else. Friends, God's a covenantal God. He's not contractual. He's covenantal. And Jesus is the ultimate statement that God binds himself to us, to you and me, to sinners. God binds himself to us. On the cross without sin, Jesus joined the place of sinful man and took sin into himself. And in return, through the Spirit, he breathes out. He receives your sin. He receives that, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He receives that into himself, and he breathes out unto you mercy and grace. So friends, maybe uh, we can confess today that we're sinners and that we're weak and that we fail and that we're broken and that we hurt and hurt others. 
And that would be the beginning place, I think, of where we receive mercy and grace, in the places of confession, confessing our weakness, asking and even pleading for mercy. Pleading for mercy, friends, it's not shameful, it's beautiful. I think God delights in it because he's like, oh, yes, my child, I've got something to give you. And it's honest. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, is the most honest thing I can say about myself. And it's the most honest thing that we can say about God, who is the giver of mercy and who is the friend of sinners. Amen.